Welcome to the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life in Scottsdale, Arizona. This is the Out of the Park podcast series. We invite you to join us for other programming you can find on our website at www.framparkcenter.org. Join us. We're bringing back a webinar from 2021, Can We Share the Future with Drs. Wes Avram and Heath Carter. This is a two-part series, and coming up is part one. Enjoy. Tonight's talk is takes a practical turn as we're in conversation with uh, Professor Heath Carter. Heath is the Associate Professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, a seminary that we enjoy a partnership with and are deeply indebted to. He teaches and writes on the intersection of Christianity and American public life. He's the author of Union Made, Working People in the Rise of Social Christianity in Chicago, which was the runner-up for the American Society of Church History's 2015 Brewer Prize. And he's the co-editor of three books, The Pew and the Picket Line, Turning Points in, in the History of American Evangelicalism, and the fourth edition of a documentary history of religion in America. He's currently working on a new book called On Earth as It Is in Heaven, Social Christians and the Fight to End American Inequality. Heath is, uh, has a family right there in Princeton, New Jersey. He's the father of three boys. So um, I've been two-thirds of the way there. So we, uh, <laughs> we understand the life you live. They're 13, <laughs> 9, and 7. Mm-hmm. He's from Topeka, Kansas, which, so you all know, is the geographic center of the continental United States. <laughs> so he comes to us from the center. Mm. Though he spent much of his life uh, in Southern California, so you can interpret that any way you please. Uh, <laughs> Heath, we're thrilled to have you with us tonight. Our conversation is going to be uh, informal tonight. I'm going to ask a few questions. Heath's going to talk us to us a little bit about his work, and then uh, we'll have a time of uh, question and answer and, and conversation after that. Does that sound about right, Heath? Sounds great. Looking nice. Thanks so much for having me. So we'll take about 45 minutes, y'all, and then uh, and then we'll open up for some wider conversation. Um, Heath, your particular area of expertise is, uh, I, if I'm understanding right, late 19th century, early 20th century into mid 20th century, social activism in the church, social gospel movement, social creeds, um, all that was churning in the life of the church and what was called the American century, um, the Christian Century magazine which is still a regular magazine and read by many in the church, sort of came out of that height of optimism around the turn of the 20th century. Um, These days, I think it can feel like Christians have lost their ability to speak clearly and confidently about the common good, a confidence that Christians, uh, at least Christian leaders in some parts of the church, felt very deeply at the turn of the last century and now feel quite confused um, about that. Um, But I know... so. That's all, not always been the case that we've um, wondered where we fit, um, even if we've not really understood all, all the complexities of where we fit, the good and the bad of it. Uh, at least we've uh, many of us thought we knew where we fit. Um, but you're writing a book about uh, what you call the Christian social tradition. How did that impact Christian self-awareness in the American context? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm writing this book right now. and. Uh, you know, again, just wonderful to be with you all and excited for this, this conversation. Hope to have a good, some good back and forth later in the in the in our time together. Um, 
I'm writing this book that's really about a tradition that we, it's easy to forget about. Um, it's a, it's a tradition that, you know, um, I would argue deeply shaped the nation um, all the way up. You know, you think about these kind of um, deeply significant, momentous social movements of the mid 20th century, right? The civil rights movement, the labor movement, people like Martin Luther King, Cesar Chavez, Fannie Lou Hamer, these sorts of uh, deeply faith filled activists. Um, today, I think about people like uh, William Barber, for example, who's sort of uh, picking up on some of those threads and in, in today's, you know, picked up the Poor People's Campaign in North Carolina and became kind of a national figure in recent years. Um, you know, part of what I'm trying to do is, is to say, where, where did those traditions come from? It turns out they have a long history and it's a history that we've, we've forgotten because uh, we live in the kind of uh, wake of a different moment, um, you know, kind of at the end of a different kind of time in, in our national history and in the history of the church. But, you know, 100 years ago, um, people were uh, Christians around this country were talking about the church's role in uh, pursuing social justice, pursuing kind of a more just and equal society. Um, sometimes they talked about it actually as just. Uh, one of the most famous kind of theologians of this, what we call the social gospel movement, was a guy named Walter Rauschenbusch. Rauschenbusch talked about uh, Christianizing the social order. And what he meant by that wasn't um, necessarily converting everyone uh, to Christianity. I think he, he lived in a time, and this is, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a difference between his time and ours, um, when Rauschenbusch was writing in the first couple of decades of the 20th century, he could presume a Christian public, right? Um, most people in that time were Christian, um, at least culturally, uh, that was their sensibility, even if they weren't church attending. So when he talked about Christianity in social order, he didn't mean uh, necessarily making converts. What he meant was um, creating a society in which sort of the principles that you might read about in the Sermon on the Mount would infuse every aspect of our life, um, you know, from our economic life, our political life, our social life, that um, they would, in, in some deep and profound way, uh, reflect what Jesus taught about loving our neighbor as ourselves and whatnot. Um, and Rauschenbusch and, and many folks in the early 20th century really believed that that could happen, mm-hmm. that, that you could come at social questions, some of the most challenging social questions that we still wrestle with today, right? Questions about economic inequality, questions about war and peace, um, you know, and, and we could come at those questions as Christians and find in the Gospels and in the Bible and in our tradition um, answers. And he thought, actually, Rauschenbusch in particular thought that Jesus had a lot to say about um, all sorts of sort of the, 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 the issues, the challenges of, of modern life. And he thought that, um, you know, along the way, the church had sort of lost sight of, of Jesus and Jesus's um, social ethic. So, you know, I think in some sense, uh, this idea that Christianity is not something that's purely private. It's not just about sort of my individual faith. It's not even just about... Um, our church community and, and what we might have together in church, but actually that Christianity has something powerful to contribute to the public square. Um, that idea was a really important, it's been a really important idea throughout American history. And we could talk, it's complicated, as you said, Wes, and sort of, uh, you know, some of the confidence, right, um, went alongside what we now could say 
were serious blind spots, serious um, mistakes, errors, uh, bad teaching. Um, all of that's in the mix, too. So I don't want to lift up kind of social gospel tradition as somehow uh, a perfect reservoir for us today as we think about social problems. Um, we can learn from both the strengths of these movements, this tradition, as I think about it, um, and also its weaknesses. So someone like Rauschenbusch, who has all sorts of things to say about economic justice, has nothing to say about racial injustice. Um, in fact, toward the end of his life, he acknowledged this. Um, and and he says that, uh, you know, he had, and, and he's living at a time when certainly um, many, many people are thinking about racial injustice. Uh, people like Ida B. Wells had, led and, and we're still leading kind of heroic charges against the NAACP was mobilizing resistance to lynching, which remained a kind of scourge across the nation. And Rauschenbusch kind of late in his life says, you know, I just, um, I wasn't sure what to say about the problems of racism in the United States. So um, we can see obvious deep shortcomings, right, in this, in this tradition, but we can also see someone like Martin Luther King Jr. who read Rauschenbusch in seminary and Mm-hmm. All those shortcomings, but also uh, took away from from Rauschenbusch and from this kind of tradition, a deep sense, again, of of uh, Christianity having something to say about social problems. Um, so, you know, lots of lots of different kind of perspectives represented around this tradition, and you can find lots of different threads within it. But that kind of conviction that, uh, you know, something like economics, which sometimes today we think of as um well, that's just the market. The market has its own logics. The, mar- the market has its own ways of operating. Um, the market, you know, isn't really under the judgment or the the rule of the gospel in some significant way, because it's just, it's got its own. This tradition that I, I'm writing this book about would have said, no, the market is fully within, actually, uh, the realm of the gospel. And Jesus had a lot to say about that. The Bible has a lot to say about that. So there's no realm of life, human life, common life that you could imagine that is outside or beyond the question. Um, one social gospel author loved to ask this question. It started as a social gospel question, not as an evangelical question. What would Jesus do? That was the question that Charles Sheldon asked in his uh, social gospel novel in the 1890s. That question came out of this, this idea um, and he had, uh, you know, kind of this imagined church. It was a novel, imagined church in the Midwest where the pastor challenged his congregation to, in every decision they made, whether it was uh, to hire or fire somebody, what kind of thing, content to publish in your newspaper, all sorts of decisions. Uh, don't make any of those decisions for a week, the pastor challenged them, without asking, what would Jesus do? It's not a great novel, by the way. So, you know, you could, I, I read it as a child. Uh, it's it's a little didactic. It's not, it's not a beautiful story, but uh, you know, it nevertheless illustrates this, the, the sense the kind of profound widespread sense that Christianity has a lot to say about these kind of fundamental questions of how do we live together in the world? Several years ago, I met someone who was doing some work at the uh, school for social work at the university of Chicago mm-hmm. on the history of the social work movement. Yeah. And which she traced back to the settlement house movement in Chicago mm-hmm. with yeah. explicitly religious roots. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and the the dominant kind of theory behind social work today denied its religious up its religious underpinnings. Yeah. And yeah. yet she traced it right back to this period of time you're describing and yeah. 
the Christian motivate Jane Adams and the settlement house movement and the like. Um, do you agree with that story? And if so, what other, what other things has that whole time yeah. deeded to our culture that the culture doesn't even know came out of it? Yeah. Um, I would, I would say certainly, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a complicated story. There's multiple threads, but the uh, social work certainly has in its origins um, deep connections to all the sorts of things I've just been talking about. So I, I have a character in my book, a woman by the name of Mary McDowell. She was, uh, uh, you know, she's, again, this is a forgotten person today, but she was someone, I, I, I find her story utterly riveting. She was, she grew up in the Midwest, moved to Chicago as a young woman. She lived in Evanston, actually, uh, where our next speaker uh, will be coming from. Um, she lived in Evanston, which was in the 18, in the 1900s, excuse me, the 1800s, 19th century. Evanston was sort of this Methodist hub, yeah. uh, a kind of, you know, pretty well-to-do suburb, but it was not just your average suburbs. You know, suburbs kind of emerged as a kind of escape from the city. Evanston was different in that Evanston was a, a hub of Christian activism. It was, the, it was the headquarters of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which, again, this is another one of these kind of forgotten organizations today, but that was profoundly important in its time in the, in the late 19th and early 20th century. The WCTU um, was in part fighting for what its name indicated. It was fighting to uh, prohib- prohibit alcohol, um, and it was you know, deeply involved in the movement for prohibition. But one of its leaders, Frances Willard, uh, was sort of a white Christian feminist of the late 19th century, and she became, in addition to uh, fighting for temperance, she became uh, one of the leading advocates of women's suffrage. She became one of the leading advocates of organized labor in the country. Uh, she had what she called a do-everything policy. We have to do everything we can to make this country more Christian. So it was the kind of place where if you were a kind of good Christian person, you could feel pretty good about being in Evanston, right? You could feel like, oh, you know, it's kind of nice here and we're sort of protected and whatnot, but we're also part of the right kinds of movements. Mary McDowell uh, spent the first half of her life there, and um Basically, what happened is she she came across this woman, Jane Adams, who was another uh, she was one of the kind of lead uh, nationally renowned settlement house workers. And she had founded this little outpost in a very poor neighborhood on the west side of Chicago called Whole House. Um, You can still go see Whole House today uh, in Chicago. They've they've got it pretty well preserved there near the University of Illinois Chicago campus. and and McDowell starts hanging out around Whole House, and she starts meeting the the men and the women who live in this poor neighborhood, immigrant people, workers, folks who were just trying to get by. Many of them didn't speak English. Many of them had very little kind of context for the kind of uh, Protestant American culture that Mary McDowell had grown up around. Um, her mom gets sick, and so she moves back to Evanston around 1893. And while she's there, one of the most iconic labor disruptions of the late 19th century happens, this Pullman strike. And um, all over the country, the churches are up in arms about this strike because basically, I mean, it's an amazing story. If you don't know the story of the Pullman strike, I mean, basically, there's a little labor dispute in the model town of Pullman. It had been founded. This guy, George Pullman, was sort of a well-meaning captain of industry who thought, I've got the solution to the nation's industrial crisis. There have been all these sort of strikes and, and boycotts and labor disruptions. And Pullman comes along and he says, the key is you have to put workers into the right kind of environment. And if you give them a nice house and you give them a kind of a nice surrounding, um, all these other issues will go away. They'll kind of, um, they'll just adapt to industrial life in the, in the ways that they should. And so Pullman built this gorgeous town. Again, you can go to Pullman, uh, south side of Chicago today and see uh, many of these beautiful brick row homes that he built for his workers. 
the gorgeous limestone uh, Presbyterian church that still stands there in town. He owned everything. Huge depression in 1893. He owns the company. He owns the town. He cuts wages, doesn't cut rents. People go on strike. Very common in the late 19th century. What was uncommon was a guy named Eugene Debs had come around and founded this railway union, the American Railway Union. And he convinced, basically what happens is uh, when, the, when the workers on Pullman go on strike, uh, the American Railway Union convinces its members all over the country to refuse to work on any train that had a Pullman car attached to it. These were these luxury cars that kind of middle and upper class people like to travel. in. it's kind of like first class today, right, on the, on the airlines. So basically what happens is within a matter of weeks, the entire rail system comes grinding to a halt. And the middle and upper classes are just up in arms. They say, this is, this is, this is insane. It would be like, you know, the railway, the, the airway is being grounded today. So churches across the country are railing against the strike. They're railing against the, the workers who are going out on strike. They think this is the worst thing ever. And Mary McDowell is just, she knows these people. She knows, she doesn't know folks in Pullman, but she knows workers. She knows what their daily lives are like. She's met them. She's experienced kind of some of their, their struggles. And she thought that more might be going on in, in Pullman. And so she goes down to the neighborhood. She meets with this Methodist pastor who had been one of the very few pastors in the country who kind of came alongside the strikers and supported them. And, and he, she started asking him questions about, you know, what about, uh, this strike, you know, what's going on? And he, and he starts to start, start to tell her more about it. And, and she realizes, oh, there's more to this story than the folks at First Methodist and Evanston know, because we're kind of sealed off, actually, as it turns out, from the lives of poor people. And so, uh, as it turned out, the strike ends, amazing photographs of, uh, Grant Park in Chicago, full of, uh, military encampment. There's a huge clashes, violent clashes in the streets of Chicago. Uh, back of the yards, the stockyards district where a lot of rail cars were stored, goes up in flames, riots, federal troops come in to kind of quell the riots. Um, as that's all kind of the, the sort of the dust hasn't even settled on all of that. And the University of Chicago comes along and says, hey, we want to found a settlement house in the back of the yards. And it goes to Jane Adams and it says, who do you think should uh, be in charge of this thing? And Jane Adams says, oh, you have to talk to Mary McDowell because she has an enthusiasm for righteousness. And sure enough, the University of Chicago gets in touch with Mary McDowell, says, would you be willing to move to back of the yards? Now, remember, McDowell's up in Evanston. She's lived most of her life in this very comfortable, gorgeous suburb right on the shores of Lake Michigan. She's being asked to, to move to one of the worst neighborhoods in America. I mean, this was the kind of place it was it was stinky. It was the place where the stockyards, the stockyards were where all the animals were slaughtered for the nation, where uh, the the stockyards bosses would lay out pig carcasses and let them dry in the sun. So the stench, the the smell, the pollution, plus in the view of many of the folks in Evanston, it was the people, right? These are poor immigrants who don't speak English. They are a threat to democracy. That was the word in Protestant churches across the country. These are the folks who are going to take America down. They don't understand America. They don't understand Christianity. They go to the saloon. We don't know what they do in the saloon, but we don't think it's good. Um, most people wouldn't want to even set foot in this kind of neighborhood, right? And so McDowell's being asked to move there, and she does. She spent the rest of her life there. She spent the second half of her life in back of the yards. Um, and over the course of her time there, she she got involved in everything. She got involved in sanitation campaigns. She got involved in um, 
campaigns for, uh, you know, to, against the Democratic machine in Chicago. She got involved with campaigns for racial justice. She got involved with campaigns for labor rights. She was just on the ground. She gets involved with the founding of the NAACP, with the founding of the Women's Trade Union League, all sorts of social movements. Um, and she's also involved with the founding of the social work profession. Hmm. Um, McDowell was someone who was a, a, a devout Christian, but who believed that um, the churches had gone astray. The churches had lost their way, and actually she gets called on the carpet by a, a, a kind of purportedly social gospel guy, publishes this article in his journal that's sort of very critical of the settlement houses and says, you know, these, these settlement house people, um, they're doing things outside of the church. They're not leading with evangelism. They're not leading with kind of traditional Christian doctrine. They're leading with this social, social justice stuff. And, uh, Medell reads this article in the journal and she says, you know, she writes Shaler Matthews, this professor at the University of Chicago Divinity School, a letter. And, and she says, you know, I really didn't like this piece. Um, and I didn't like it because for me, I do all of this because of my faith. She says, must we not see Christ back of the yards? Because I found him there among these people that you won't come near. Um, so I think about people like Mary McDowell when I think about this tradition too, right? Rauschenbusch is in a fancy seminary. Uh, McDowell's back of the yards, and she really came to believe that for Christians, part of what it meant to be faithful was to find ways to connect in a serious way with the poor, and not just to connect with them in a sense of uh, a, a helping way, but to connect with them in a sense of taking on their burdens in some sense as her own. That's how she kind of came to see it. And for her, that was the way uh, to kind of both be faithful as a Christian, but also uh, it was the way to really restore American democracy, which seemed at that moment to be under deep threat. Thank you for joining us in our Out of the Park podcast series, Can We Share the Future with Drs. Wes Abram and Heath Carter. Join us next week for part two. Thanks for joining us at our Out of the Park podcast series. If you like this program and would like to check out more, go to our website at www.framparkcenter.org.